Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Hayden. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Um, I'm from, as you said, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada. And um, what a pleasure it is to be in the house of the Lord. Um, I've been asked to pray, and then we'll, we'll um, look at God's word together. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you who made heaven and earth, you sustain and govern all things. Uh, you are good and merciful. You are perfect. You are our God. Father, we look to ourselves and we see that we are sinful. And Lord, we're ashamed of our sin. And yet, Lord, we look to Christ. We look to his righteousness, not our own. And we are so thankful and grateful for Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for raising him from the dead on the third day. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have all the blessings in Christ in the heavenly places, and our hearts overflow with joy uh, to what you've done in our lives. And we have some requests, Lord, this morning. We, we First of all, I, I pray for this church, this body of believers Lord, I pray that you would make them worthy of their calling as Christians. I pray that the name of Christ would be glorified in their lives. I pray that, that you would continue to sanctify them. I pray that this church would be a light in this community, uh, in the Antelope Valley, Lord, in Lancaster and Palmdale, and that you would work through this church, that you would build your kingdom, and that, Lord, this church would be strategic in its outreach to this area. Lord, we pray for the lost. We pray that they would see their own condition and see that they are great sinners, yet that you are a great Savior. We pray that you would save them even today, even those who are sitting here in these chairs, Lord, that you would come upon them, Lord, and show them their sin and show them their need, Lord, for a Savior. We pray for Pastor Barcelos, who's in Brazil. We pray that you would give him safe traveling mercies, that he, you would keep him safe, Lord, wherever he goes. I pray for the classes that he is teaching, that they would be beneficial, and that you would build your kingdom there in Brazil. Thank you for the work that you are doing there already, and we pray uh, for revival uh, in Brazil. We also pray for all the true churches of Jesus Christ here in, in this area, in, in the Southern California, in the country, and, and even the whole world, as many pulpits Lord, are, are declaring your word today. We pray that your word would go out. It would be true and it would be accurate and that you would save the lost. And Lord, as we come to hear from your word, Lord, I pray that you would increase, Lord. I pray that, that I would decrease. I pray that if there's anything that is said that is, that is not true, that it would be forgotten. If, that, if there's anything that is said that is true, that it would be um, effective to our hearts and to our souls, that we would grow in grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be preaching from a text in the Old Testament, and so if you would turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Uh, this is called the Song of Moses, uh, or the Song by the Sea, or the Song of the Sea. I don't think the song of the sea is good because the sea is not singing, <laughs> uh, but it's the people who are by the sea that are singing. And before I start, I just wanted to acknowledge 
Much of what I've uh, prepared is not my own work. I've benefited from many other theologians, and so uh, especially uh, Michael Morales. He's an Old Testament scholar, and G.K. Beale, and I just wanted to acknowledge that before we start. Let's look at God's word. This is Exodus 15. We'll read verses 1 through 18. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This reads God's word. Now, very quickly, the context of this passage is Israel has just been brought out of Egypt, and they have just passed through the waters of the Red Sea. It's a glorious miracle, perhaps one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. And this is the song that all the people of Israel sing as they're standing on the shores, looking back and seeing the sea. That's why it's called the song of by the sea of how God had delivered them. So before I, I jump into our outline, let me just say two things by way of introduction. First of all, what is the genre of this passage? What is the genre? In the book of Exodus, you could take the first half of it, uh, 1 through 19, that's narrative, the story of how God brings Israel out of Egypt. And the second half is legislative. It's all the laws given at Mount Sinai. Um, you might have read through Exodus, and it's like, this is really interesting. And then you read 20 chapters of law, and you're like, oh, like, difficult. And what happens is, if you look at your Bibles, you can see that the text is set in a different way than the rest of what comes before and what comes after. It's because it's in poetic form. It's Hebrew poetry. And what this is, it's a victory hymn that is sung. And in the Bible, there are many victory hymns. Let me give you a few. In Judges chapter 5, there's the song of Deborah and Barak as they sing when God delivers them from their enemies. 
Or in 2 Samuel 22, David is delivered from Saul and he sings a song to the Lord, a victory hymn. God has defeated his enemies. Uh, Many of the Psalms that we read are victory hymns of how God has delivered his people. Isaiah 51.11 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing. And so we see this pattern in the Bible of when God delivers his people, what do they do? They sing in response. So what Kevin DeYoung says, he says, God saves, his people sing. And we sing a lot of hymns in our churches, don't we? That's a good thing. We're among um, a very good company in the scriptures. The second thing to note is, look at, your, look at the text here. You can see that when we look at the names of God in the Bible, it's good to know which ones are which. And so where you see the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's referring to a Hebrew name, which is Yahweh, or the, it's called the Tetragrammaton. It's a pretty long word. Uh, but that's what also the, the name Jehovah is the same thing. Um, and it's the name of the covenant name of God of how he has revealed himself to his people. Also in this hymn, there's a short version of that. And it's just the first half of Yahweh. It's Yah, just Y-A-H. And if you know, you sing the word hallelujah, that's just saying praise Yah, praise God. It's, it's used for poetry. When you, you know how you have syllables and you need to shorten it to make it fit in the meter. And that's what's happening here. And what's important, look at verse 3. Israel says something. It says, the Lord is his name. Or in the Hebrew, Yahweh is his name. That's a very important thing to notice. Very important. Do you remember when Moses was being sent to Egypt? And he says to the people of Israel, what happens if they ask, what is your name, God? And what does God say? He says, I am that I am, right? Which is a derivative of Yahweh. And so after being delivered by God, what does Israel say here at the shores of the Red Sea? Yahweh is his name. You see, they learned his name now. And now they confess that this is their God. Yahweh is his name. And so what this song is, is really what did Israel learn about God through the events of the Exodus? And so we're going to look at three things. There's much here in our text, but I want to focus on three things Um, about God here. First of all, here's our first point. God is a warrior. God is a warrior. We see this in verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. Some translations say the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And I want you to notice, this might seem kind of strange to us to say that God is a warrior. So we'll all unpack this and we'll, we'll learn what this means. Let's look through our text though. Notice all of the warrior language in our text. Verse 1, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Notice how it says his chosen officers. These weren't weren't peasants who were fighting for Egypt. These were the best of Egyptian soldiers, and God defeats them here. Verse 5, the floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. See, God is defeating his enemies, and we're using warrior language. Notice how it says they went down into the depths. Uh, the Red Sea was not a puddle. <laughs> um, it was not a swamp. It was a deep body of water. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, if you know Egyptian literature, many times Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is said to have a strong right arm or a strong hand, and with this he defeats his enemies. 
But what's happening here? Is Pharaoh the one who is defeating his enemies? No, God defeats Pharaoh and his army with God's right hand. So there's an irony there, a twisting of, of Egyptian belief. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Again, warrior language. And then in verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead into the mighty waters. And verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. Again, that, that symbolism of strength. The earth swallowed them. Now you might wonder, wait, the earth swallowed them? Wasn't it the waters that swallowed them? So the word in Hebrew for earth can also just mean the grave. And so what this is meaning is that they were swallowed by the grave. It means they died. And so we see here that God is described as defeating his enemies. God is a warrior. And let's make some observations about this this fact that God is a warrior. This is not a battle here between two countries or two nations. This isn't a battle between Egypt and Israel. There's something more going on here. This is a battle primarily between God and Egypt. Israel is just there. They are delivered. And we see also here a glimpse of something even deeper. We see this this war, this cosmic war that's going on behind the scenes between God and Satan here. And this might not seem apparent, but let, let me show you. You know, in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, we see that there is enmity put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this goes throughout the whole narrative of the Bible. You can see this this war going on um, between these two seeds. And we know that Satan and his demons have turned the nations of the world against God and against his church. Look at Ephesians 6.12. What does it say? Do we fight against nations, like countries? No, we fight against principalities and powers, against the cosmic rulers of the darkness, against spiritual hosts of evil in the heavenly places. And if you actually look, we can see a demonic influence in Egypt. Now, what am I talking about? You know when Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew children, the male children of of the Jews, to be thrown into the Nile and killed? Now, you might think that that's just on the surface level. It's Pharaoh trying to wipe out a foreign people within his own land. But if you think of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Israel is the seed of the woman. And Pharaoh is trying to wipe out the male line of the Hebrews. This is a sinister attack against God's people and the line of the Messiah. However, God overcomes this, does he not? As the young Hebrew children are killed and drowned in the Nile River, who in a little basket, like an ark, like a mini ark. Moses goes through the Nile and he's saved, and he becomes the deliverer of God's people. Also notice, how did the Egyptians die in the Red Sea? They're drowned. In in an ironic twist, just how the Hebrew children drowned in the Nile, so the whole army of Egypt is killed and drowned in the exact same manner. And we know that God is the victor, that in the end, we we have the whole Bible. God has defeated Satan. He has has stamped on his head, and we know that Christ has won. And and this is amazing to see this stage of this battle in the Bible. Moving on, we also see that God alone is responsible for this victory. When we say that God is a warrior, we don't say Moses and the Israelites and God were warriors. It's just God is a man of war. We don't have all these descriptions of, oh, there's the strong Israelite warriors who held off the Egyptians at the back of the, of, the, of the host as it was going through the Red Sea. 
All we have is that God defeats the Egyptians. That is, that is the thing to note here. And if you study Israel, Israel thinks they're so special, but they really weren't. God chose them for God's own pleasure. And again and again, Israel is up against the greatest of odds, and they're only delivered by the power of God, not by their own strength. And we can see a picture in our own salvation, can we not? Uh, We are saved because of God's own pleasure, not because of anything good in us. Now, a theological note. How do we understand the phrase, God is a warrior? Do we mean that literally? Does God have a shield and a helmet and a sword? How do we understand this? Well, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. It's a long word, but it just means the form of a man. It's a way of speaking about God, God revealing himself to us in our language and the way we understand things. Uh, John Calvin says, this is to the weakness of our capacity. See, these things are true, but we don't want, we want to be careful about how literal we take them. God is like that. God is a warrior. And God condescends himself to our ways of understanding so that we might know him. And that's what's going on here. Now, does our culture and our world like the phrase, God is a warrior? <laughs> no, they would be quite, quite angry or confused or sad about this phrase, God is a warrior. And even many Christians are offended by this kind of language. Yet, this is what the whole counsel of God gives to us, and we should believe it. You know, if this offends you, that God is a warrior... Well, what does it say about you? You're wishing for a God that never really existed, that you've created. You, wanna, you want to chop God's attributes half in the middle, and you want to believe that he is love, loving and merciful and gracious, but not just and not powerful. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the true God. You've redefined who God is. You know, in a fallen world, hostile to God, he must be a warrior. He must defend his people. He must be a warrior. And this is not the only passage that talks about God being a warrior. We could go through the whole Bible and we could see how God is spoken of a warrior. Let me give you just a few examples. In Psalm 24, 8, the psalmist says, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Or the prophet Isaiah says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries aloud. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This is language to show that God does defeat his enemies. And when we go to the New Testament, Jesus is described as a warrior. You see, some people think the Old Testament is the God of justice, and he's angry with his people. And the New Testament, there's a loving and merciful Jesus. And that's not the picture that we have in the Bible. There is one God through and through. And we see that in, in, the, in, the, in the way that Jesus fights and wins victory at the cross, that is Jesus defeating his enemies. He defeats death. In, in Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to opening shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarms the rulers. This is warrior language. And especially at Jesus' second coming, he is described as a divine warrior. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it talks about the coming of the lawless one. And how does Jesus kill him? 
with the breath of his mouth. And so we see here that Jesus is spoken of as a warrior. You could read in Revelation of how he's on the white horse and he makes war against the nations, how the sword comes out from his mouth. And there's no contest here. God defeats his enemies. Now, what are the implications of this for you? You're sitting here and you're wondering, yeah, this is interesting passage in the Old Testament, but what does it mean for me? Well, if you're one of God's people, he is your warrior. He is your warrior. You're on the winning side. You're on the side of God. And Jesus has won victory for your soul, and he has saved you. But if you're an enemy of God here today, and make no mistake, there's no in-between. You can't be neutral in this world. You're either for or against the Lord. Well, you're not on the side of God as a warrior, and you will be defeated, just like the Egyptians were at the Red Sea. Well, what do you do then? Well, you flee to Christ. You come to him. Is it more difficult for God to part the waters of the Red Sea or to change your heart? God can. Ask him. Pray to God that he would save you. And if he is not your enemy, then he is your friend. All right, let's move on to the second point. The second point. God is incomparable. Look at verse 11. Hear the people of Israel saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, this is the centerpiece of this whole victory hymn. This is a very important verse. If you were one of the Israelites at the Red Sea, you would be able to sing with great confidence that your God was incomparable. You just saw that the whole Egyptian army, who you were afraid of for many years of your life, be defeated by nature, by the Red Sea just destroying them. You would see that your God is more powerful than any other gods. Now, I have to explain this phrase. See how it says, among the gods? Some people take that and say, oh, so polytheism is a thing. There's a lot of gods, a pantheon of gods, but God's just the best one. Well, no, obviously not. That is not what we're saying here. This isn't saying that there are truly other gods. It's saying whatever other people say are gods, God is the only true God in comparison or contrast to them. What, what they're saying is this, God, you are so superior to heavenly and fallen angels who might be worshipped as gods, or even to what the pagans say their non-existent gods happen to be. Uh, Paul kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so you can see that was what it's talking about. When Jethro, that's Moses' father-in-law, when he hears about what happens at the Red Sea, he says, now I know that, there, that God is the only God among the gods. And so Jethro will confess the same thing. This is the incomparability of God. Now look at verse 11 again at the second part of it. It says that God is majestic and holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Now, these are wonderful things. And for sake of time, I'm just going to talk about the first phrase, majestic and holiness. What does the holiness of God have to do with his incomparability? This is important. Holiness is very important to know. The word holy 
in its most basic sense, just means to be set apart, to be set apart. And so God is separate. He is distinct. John Calvin says this, Holiness expresses that glory which separates God from all his creatures. It's one of the most central attributes of God. In um, Hannah, in her song in 1 Samuel 2, says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Here's what Stephen Charnock says. He's a Puritan. He says that God especially delights in his holiness. Listen to him as he says, None, holy God's holiness, none is sounded out so loftily, with such solemnity, and so frequently by angels that stand before his throne as this. Where do you find any other attribute troubled, sung three times, in the praises of it as this? We just sang, holy, holy, holy. Are there other places in the Bible where the angels sing justice, 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 or faithful, faithful, faithful? No. Holiness is troubled by the angels um, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation. And not to show that, in a sense, we don't want to say that some of attributes are more important than others, but this is central to who God is. He is holy. He is separate. And so what does that have to do with incomparability? If God is completely separate, there is no comparison to our God. And this is a theological note. There's, there's a teaching out there that basically says this. God is the highest and most powerful being in the universe. Now, that kind of sounds good, but God is not just the greatest, like he's some kind of great angel. He is separate. He is altogether different than us. He is different in his being. And we want to be careful uh, to confess this. Furthermore, Israel, seeing this incomparable God, what do they do? They own him for their own. They say, this is my God, in verse 2, and I will exalt him. You see personal ownership of the God of Israel. And if you look at the first commandment in Exodus 20, God says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am incomparable in the way that I have rescued you. And then what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see how one leads to the other? If God is truly holy and incomparable, then what is our response? To have no other gods before him. And it's very helpful uh, to ask yourself some questions about the first commandment. Uh, Here's some that, that Kevin DeYoung asks us, and this can help us reveal the idols in our lives, that we might have other gods before him. Whom do you praise? You may compliment your children, your, chil- your children, your spouse, your friends, but who really receives your highest praise in your life? Whom do you count on? Who do you depend on? We depend on many people, but do you foundationally depend upon God? Whom do you call for? Who- where do you look for answers? Where do you turn for purpose and joy in your life? Do you look to food? Do you look to your work? Do you look to your phone? <laughs> where-, where do you look for your purpose and your joy in your life? Do you look to God? It's a good question to ask. And then also, whom do you thank in the end of days, in the end of the matter? Whom do you thank? Where do your good days come from? Who made the moon and the stars and the beautiful desert? Um, saw the green hills here. Who, who made these things? Who do you really thank for all the goodness in your life? And so these things can help us reveal the idols in our lives and to worship the one true God. Okay, our third point and our last point. 
God will bring his people home. God will bring his people home. This is the the last part of our passage, seeing in verses 13 to 18. And there's several important things to note here. The people, people of Israel sing that God redeems them and that he guides them to his holy abode. Abode is like a house or a place where someone lives. And it talks about how God brings his people to his mountain. Okay, what's that talking about? Well, I think this is God bringing his people home. And we see the Red Sea and the Exodus itself is part of this journey where God brings his people to the promised land, to where he will dwell with them. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would dwell where? In Canaan, right? In the promised land. And his word came true. Just keep reading in the Old Testament. You'll get to Joshua, and you'll see that Canaan is, is conquered, and the people of Israel live there. And look at, look at verses 13 to 18. This song goes from talking about what has just happened to what will happen in the future. Do you see that? It talks about how the nations of Canaan will fear God and his people when they come to their own land. And, and this comes true as well. If you, um, if you read in Joshua, there's the very interesting character of Rahab in Jericho. And, and when they come to Jericho, this is what Rahab says. I know that the Lord has given you the land of Canaan, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And she talks about how we heard about the Red Sea, and we heard about the ten plagues, and we are all afraid of God. And so we see that this is prophetic in this passage. It comes true. Okay, and then also notice the temple language in our text. What is it? What am I talking about? Well, what is a temple, first of all? Um, A temple is where God meets with man, or when man meets with God. And the Garden of Eden, actually, was a kind of temple, because God dwelt with man, right? It says that he spoke to Adam and to Eve, and there's this closeness, there's this dwelling with God in Eden. Also, the tabernacle. Think about the tabernacle. It says in the end of Exodus that the glory of God came down into the tabernacle and dwelt among the people of Israel. Right? That's another kind of temple. It's where God dwells with his people. So where do we find the temple in this passage? Look at verse 13. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Okay, what's God's holy abode? Abode can mean a dwelling. It even can mean a pasture or a habitation, a house. It's where God lives. It's where God dwells. So God will bring his people to him where he dwells. And then look at verse 17. You will bring them and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The word sanctuary, by the way, means a holy place, and it's where God dwells. That's, again, temple language. Now let's talk about the mountain. Um, I really like mountains. I climb them for fun. So I love that mountains have a special place in the Bible. (laughs) But... Here we see that God will bring his people to his mountain. And mountains are very important places in the Bible. Can you think of important mountains that come up again in Scripture? Uh, We could talk about Mount Sinai, where God comes down. Uh, We could talk about 
Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. Uh, we could talk about Mount Moriah, where Isaac is, sacrifices his son. I'm sorry, Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac um, on the Mount Moriah. Um, we even can uh, think about Mount Ararat, where Noah comes down after the flood and God makes his covenant with him. Mountains are important places, many times where God will meet or dwell with men. And so what do we see here in our text? We see that God is bringing his people home to himself, to his mountain, to his sanctuary, to his abode. And you may ask, which mountain, though? Is this talking about Mount Sinai? Because they're about to go to Mount Sinai. Maybe it's that. Or maybe it's Mount Zion. Maybe God will bring the, his people, Israel, to Mount Zion and Jerusalem uh, in, in Joshua. Well, maybe they are talking about that. But I believe there's something even deeper going on here. It's not just that God will bring his people, Israel, to an actual physical mountain. There is something, a greater truth here about us, you sitting right here today. And so wh- why do I say this? Well, the, the, the temples in the Bible, they're never permanent, are they? They never last. God may bring his people to himself, but then what happens? Israel goes to other gods, and it doesn't last. It's not permanent. And so there, there's a, if you look at the end of this text, what does it say? The Lord reigns forever and ever. That doesn't happen with Mount Sinai or Mount Zion when, when, when Israel goes there. I think this is talking about us going to be with God someday. And we can sing this song with Israel. You know, we as New Testament Christians are going to a temple someday. We are going to meet with God In the Old Testament, God promised that he will dwell with his people forever and that he will come and dwell in their midst. Isn't that wonderful, brothers and sisters, that God will dwell with us? He will be in our midst someday, that we will see him face to face. And and in the New Testament, this is wonderful. We see Jesus. What is his name? Emmanuel. God with us. God dwells with us. Literally, Jesus is God in the flesh. God dwelling among us. And Jesus talks about himself as a temple, even, if you look at that in the New Testament. And at the end of days, in Revelation 21, it says this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the true and the best temple ever, where we can dwell with God forever. God will bring his people home. And I think we can read this text as New Testament Christians, and we can apply it to ourselves and look forward to the day when we will dwell with God forever. And and also, we see that the promised land of Canaan, which is promised to Israel, also points to something greater. Israel will be taken to Canaan, but just like its temples, Canaan wasn't the end. Uh, one commentator says, there was more to the promise than dirt. <laughs> there was more to the promise than dirt. It says in Hebrews 4 that the patriarchs were searching for that better heavenly country, not just the, the land of Palestine or the land of Canaan. And in Christ, we see fulfillment in our dwelling with God. <laughs> when you become a Christian, do you get land as a gift for being baptized or something like that? Obviously not. Maybe that would be nice. But, but that's not how it is. But we actually have a promise of land. There's this idea that heaven is like we'll be floating on clouds with harps or something like that. Very ethereal. That's from like far side comics. That's not the biblical description of heaven. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will actually, there will be a real 
physical promised land that we will dwell in as believers. Um, In Revelation 22, we have this beautiful description of what it means to dwell with God. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And so the Israelites at the Red Sea, this is the last thing, they, they, they sing that God will reign forever and ever in, the, in the verse 18 there. Well, if, if you are one of God's people and it says that God will reign forever and ever, what does it say about you? You will reign forever and ever with the Lord. And so if God will bring us home, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us as, as believers? How should we live if God will bring us home? Well, if God will bring us home, then why do you cling to your sin? and not put it to death. If God will bring you home, then let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. If God will bring us home, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If God will bring us home, let us walk with a quickened step and upright heart. If God will bring us home, then let us see that our sufferings and our trials and our persecutions Let's see them in their proper perspective. Know that God is preparing for us in them an eternal weight of glory. If God will bring us home, then we shouldn't try to create an over-realized kingdom of God on earth. We need to await the timing of the Lord and be patient. If God will bring us home, then let us be diligent in using our gifts for God's glory and in his church. If God will bring us home, let us be earnest in prayer that God's will will be done. Let us seek out others to win them to Christ. Let us be faithful to all that God has given us. If God will bring us home, then also we know we have a living hope in the resurrection. If God will bring us home, consider Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the glory of God. And finally, if God will bring us home, consider him who for our sakes entered the dark waters of death, yet passed through the waters to the yonder shore in glory and triumph, and now he's seated at God's right hand. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we have learned from this passage that you are a warrior, you are incomparable, and the glorious truth that you will bring us home. Our Father, we pray that these truths would set upon our hearts and our minds, that we would know you better, more accurately, more truthful, and that our response will be one of gratefulness, that you're, you do all things for your own glory, and that in your own pleasure, Lord, you saved us. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to build your church, and that you would bring us home to that heavenly country where we will see you face to face. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.